following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. While you're still in that posture of meditation and reflection, I want to ask you to ponder another question. And that question is this, what do you most want or need from Jesus right now, today? If Jesus were here uh, next to you and you could ask him for anything, what would it be? Maybe peace for a storm in your life, maybe assurance, healing, provision, security. Take just a minute and see that, that thing, that idea that you would want or need from Jesus right now. So you're aware of, of that, that idea. I want you to hold it kind of at the back of your head for the time being. And uh, I'm going to kind of tear us out of this, this moment of meditation. And I'm going to show you a picture of a person. Uh, and I, what I want you to do is tell me what uh, this guy right in the middle, how well can you see him right here with the striped shirt? You can't see his face, so you don't know who he is. What would you guess he does for work? Somebody just shout it out. Maybe, maybe a politician? Sorry? CEO of a company? Actor? Lots of cameras on him? Well, the truth is, his name is Brett Cohen, and he's just a student. Not to diminish any of you who are just students. But he's not famous in any way except for the fact that he uploaded a video which went viral called Fake Celebrity Pranks New York City. And I would encourage you to go watch this video. It's quite amusing. Uh, He and his friend with a video camera got some other friends together, dressed him up like a movie star, dressed them up like bodyguards, and started walking around New York City. And in fairly short order a crowd formed and started following him. And he's coming, people are letting him into these fancy nightclubs and uh, people are asking him questions, people are posing for pictures with him. And it's literally impossible that they have any idea why they're doing it. Except there's a giant crowd following this guy around, so he must be famous. They even interview some people, like, so uh, what's your favorite thing that he's done? <laughs> you know? And people make stuff up on the spot. Clearly, they are making it up. So Fake Celebrity Pranks in New York City gives us a window into mob mentality or, or herd mind. You've heard these phrases before. The truth about people is that if you get enough of them together, they will basically go along with almost anything. I mean, some truly horrible things in certain cases. 
I mean, the silliness of this prank actually illustrates a fairly significant flaw in human nature. And this was just as true in Jesus' day as it is in our day. And that uh, herd mentality or mob mind um, applies to some of Jesus' early followers. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus was a charlatan like Brett Cohen. I, I believe Jesus was and is who he said he was. I believe the miracles that he did were real. But that doesn't mean that the people who were following him around, sometimes in very large groups, had any idea who he really was or what he was really doing. There was a great deal of confusion and many, many false expectations among Jesus' early followers, especially as the crowds began to swell. So we're continuing today in this story from John chapter 6, which is fast becoming one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I've just had so much fun... um, going through this chapter as I've prepared these messages and talked with you about the stories. But if you were here last week, you remember that Jesus had miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 or more people with just five little barley loaves and a couple of fish. And he distributed it and the the food multiplied and, and everybody was satisfied and there was actually some left over. And you can imagine after a miracle like that, if you're in the crowd, if you ate the bread, you would want to stick around and see what was going to happen next. And that's where we pick up today. Um, our story today is from John six fifteen through 26. And if you have a red Bible like one of these, they're under your chairs in the wings and they're in the seat pockets in the middle. You can follow along. You can also use your own Bible if you brought one. I would encourage you to own a Bible and kind of get connected to it. Um, you ever have that experience where you, in any kind of book where you've read something meaningful and you think of it years later and you can actually see where it was on the page in your mind, right? This is the problem with e-books, I think, more than anything else, because <laughs> it's just like I'm scrolling. Every word is literally everywhere. But um, if you have your own Bible, that kind of thing will happen with the Bible. As you begin to dig into it, you'll, you'll have your favorite spots and you'll see them and it'll be a nice connection. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of these home. It's now yours. Um, what I want to do, though, to, is to read today's text in two pieces. I'm going to rearrange them a little bit because this first verse, John 6.15, um, sets, it's sort of like it sets two different scenes in a movie. There's two groups of people who respond to that verse in different ways. And so what I've done is broken them into two parts, the part one and part two. So um, verse 15 says, When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's the starting point for both of these little scenes that we're going to set up here. Um, Because they had seen this miracle and they were getting kind of frenzied. They were excited that he was the prophet that Moses had promised God would send, and they're about to take him by force and make him king. And so he withdraws again to the mountain by himself. So we'll skip 16 through 21 for now. Uh, We'll come back to that very cool story in a second, but let's jump ahead to verse 22, because part one 
deals with the big crowd of people, the, the majority of the people who witnessed this miracle. This is what happens. So verse 15, Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And we're going to get some details about boats and people trying to figure things out. Just kind of uh, go with the flow, sorry. Um, They saw that there had only been one boat there. They, They also saw that Jesus had not got into the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So this story makes me think of of the crowd chasing the movie star. They may have a, a very real reason for wanting to get close to this person. In this case, it's Jesus. But they don't actually know the person that they're, they're pursuing. You can imagine um, uh, Morgan Freeman going for coffee, and he just gets mobbed by people, right? He probably can't go anywhere without people coming up and asking him to, to narrate their birthday party or something, right? <laughs> I think, but they, but they don't know anything. They don't know his mother's name. They never, they don't know if he has kids or a wife or sisters and brothers. They know nothing about him except they like Shawshank Redemption, right? Or whatever. What's your favorite Morgan Freeman movie? The Penguin one? Oh, March of the Penguins. Okay, yeah, sure, of course, of course. <laughs> um <laughs> They know nothing about him. They're just, they just want to be like, close to the thing that's really cool. I think that's what this crowd is doing. They see that Jesus and his disciples are gone, and they're like, what happened? I'm going to go find him. I want to be near him. And Jesus basically cuts right through their motives and says, you don't, you're, not, you're not interested in the actual miracles and what they mean. You just ate your fill of the bread. You had a, you had a, a neato experience, and you kind of want to keep it going kind of how I take his words, what, the, what I take them to mean. So the crowd just sort of, bleh, Jesus. Right? Meanwhile, in the, in the time in between, we see what happens with Jesus' closer disciples, the inner circle, if you will. Let's go back to verse 15 for a second. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat And they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat. 
And immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. So the disciples who are closer to Jesus, and, and they're kind of, they may think of themselves kind of in the hipster way, like we were with Jesus before all the miracles. They have this kind of longer dedication to him. And yet they are still alone after he disappears. And they don't know where he went. They may be feeling dejected. And you know when you're like part of a really like cool inside group and then somehow something happens and suddenly you're lumped in with all the schlubs? This happens to me all the time. I mean, I don't know. But you know what, you, you can imagine that feeling, right? They felt like they were part of the, the inner circle, and then all of a sudden they're just standing there with these, you know, slack-jawed yokels who, who really only like Jesus for the, the bread. And so they get in the boat and start going, and then what's worse is a storm comes, and it's blowing them all over the place. Have you ever rowed a boat? It is hard work. Now, some of them were fishermen. They probably had guys with developed lats or something, I don't know. Uh, But rowing three or four miles in a storm is hard work. And probably with every splinter from the oars, they got more and more upset and more and more dejected and maybe more and more angry at Jesus. And then storms are also very frightening, especially on the water. And then the ghost comes and, you know, in, in the other stories in the Gospels, the other versions of this story in the other Gospels, it's a little bit more clear that they're, they don't quite know who this is at first. They're afraid. And then they see who it is. And what does he say? In very proper Queen's English, in our translation, it is I, right? Did you know you're not supposed to say it is me with the verb to be, which includes is, you have to use the um, first person's, I don't know. You're supposed to say it is I. Yeah. Sure, that. Yeah. But what the Greek actually says, I'm going to one-up you here, Ken. Jesus says, I am. Which, for Jewish believers, is an amazing thing to say because that is the name of God. Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. Whenever you see the Lord in, in all like small caps in the Old Testament, that's this Hebrew word that means I am. Sometimes they attach other things to it. I am the Lord, your provider, etc., etc. Jesus is identifying himself with those two words, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. And actually, as we proceed through John you're going to see Jesus make a lot of I am statements. And each time I'm going to remind you, this is what he's doing. When he says, I'm the good shepherd, or I am the door, I am the true vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life, all these I am statements connect back to this moment and to the entire understanding of who God is for the Jewish people. So you have these two stories, the crowd and the disciples. And there's a key word that appears twice in this passage. Once in each part. Well, technically the first time is in 15, which is in both parts. But once it applies to the crowd of people and once it applies to the disciples. 
And if you saw the title slide a minute ago, you may have guessed what the word is. The word is take. And I saw this, and it just kind of, you know how uh, we talk about when we do Lectio Divina together, sometimes the words glow for you a little bit. It's almost like the Spirit of God is bringing your attention to this word. That's kind of what happened for me when I read this passage for the first time um, in preparation for today's message. The idea of taking Jesus really seated itself in my, my understanding in my heart, if you will. So in, in verse 15, it's talking about the crowd, and it says, Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, which is kind of a, <laughs> that's sort of a, a almost oxymoron, isn't it? They're going to take him by force and make him a king. They want him to be a, a political figurehead. And we talked about this a lot, how they, they, their expectation was for a Messiah to come and, and free them from oppression in the Roman Empire. And then in verse 21, it's talking about the close disciples in the boat, terrified, in danger, and feeling alone. And they see Jesus, and they wanted to take him into the boat. And what it says is, immediately the boat reached the land towards which they were going. Kind of a strange thing. Is this, a, is this sort of a miraculous, like, what's that thing in Star Trek? You nerds know about this, right? Were they warp or beaming or something? I don't know. Transport. <laughs> Transport. <laughs> Thank you. And everybody's pointing to him going, yeah, he knows his stuff. <laughs> So the boat is transported to shore immediately when they try to take him in to their, their moment of fear. It's the same word, take him. Very different situations and very different results. When the followers try to take him for their own devices to make him a king for political purposes, he doesn't just say no to them, he disappears. Kaiser Sose, right? <laughs> I'm really hammering my 90s movie references today. He doesn't just say no, he is gone so, not to be seen. When the disciples, at the end of their rope, and they try to, to take him into their moment of fear and hard labor, he doesn't say anything to soothe them. They just simply arrive at their destination. The fear and the problem are just solved. So the first group of people were chasing Jesus down, but they kind of like in the Morgan Freeman scenario, they had no idea what he was about. They wanted to take him in the sense of possessing him. You can't own Jesus. And the second group of people had given up and moved on. I guess we'll find Jesus some other time. And he had come to them to the point of terrifying them. And they wanted to take him in the sense of bringing him close to their fears and surrendering to him in their moment of deepest need. And so what I want to ask you today is which group are you in? Now, you guys are pros at going to church, a lot of you. So you know you're supposed to be in the second group, right? You don't want to be with that first group. When I ask you which group we're in, you're like the second one. The second group.
But I really want you to ponder this question, and maybe it's now a good time to remember that thing that came to mind when I asked you what you would ask Jesus for if he was right here. I deliberately framed that question, making Jesus sound like uh, a, a genie who will grant you one wish. Did you want a genie, Jesus, when I asked you that question? Sometimes we want a genie, Jesus. I just made that up. I'm going to write it down. Another way of saying it is, how do you want to take Jesus? You want to take him and, and, and possess him? You want to own Jesus? Have you dusted off a special spot on your mantle for him? The mantle in your heart? Do you want to own him or do you want him to own you? Because that's really kind of more what happens with that second group of people, isn't it? They were not sitting there in the boat praying, please, Jesus, walk on the water and find us and beam our boat to shore. If they'd been praying that, something different probably would have happened. But that is not what they were looking for. Sometimes the thing that you want most from Jesus and the thing you feel like you need from Jesus is not what he is interested in giving to you. And it is not how he is interested in solving your problem. In fact, solving your problem may not be on his honey-do list. So I want you to ask yourself honestly, and we'll answer this question honestly. Are you, are you guilty of, of trying to take Jesus and make him into something that you want him to be? And don't forget that for the for that crowd of Jewish people, that thing that they wanted Jesus to be was what their entire religious experience was anticipating him to be. So, when I ask you that question, do you want to take Jesus and make him into something that you want him to be, you're not off the hook, necessarily, if you say, no, no, I just want, I just want what the church wants Jesus to be. <laughs> The only way to, to take Jesus as what he wants to be for you is to, to cry to him in, in, in your moment of need when you have nothing there. And I think a lot of Christians, myself very much included for a good deal of my life and probably is still quite true to this point, a lot of us haven't really had that moment where we've had to cry out to him. Unless, you, unless you're one of the lucky people who converted to Christianity later in life, you have this whole lifetime of, of religious and spiritual experience that is essentially baggage in this regard. Because you already have what Jesus is all mapped out behind you. Sometimes you, it has to be blown to pieces and put back together one little brick at a time. Or miraculously all at once in the case of this, these disciples. It could go either way. So I want you to think and be thinking even as you leave today and go about your week. 
how do I want to take Jesus? Do I want to own him or do I want him to, to give himself to me and, and really own my heart and my soul and my mind? There's another important moment in the Gospels when the disciples take Jesus. Happens one year later, after this event, at the next Passover. The disciples are observing this dinner with Jesus. And uh, I'm going to leave the Gospel of John and read to you a, a couple of verses from the Gospel of Matthew because his wording of this event is important and it connects us to today's key word. In Matthew 26, it says, While they were eating, they were eating the Passover meal together, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said what? Take. Eat. This is my body. And then you know the rest of the story. He took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So again, when the followers try to take Jesus and make him a king, he doesn't say no, he disappears. And when the disciples are at the end of their rope and try to take him into their moment of fear, he doesn't soothe them, he just simply, they arrive. And when we come to the table of communion and take and eat his body, we are caught up in the middle of all of that. We acknowledge our shortcomings, our sin. We acknowledge that we all have these selfish desires and maybe slightly better and maybe much worse, worse than selfish desires are self-centered needs. We all place demands on Jesus, just like those casual followers did. But we also recognize Jesus as the king, the true king, not in the sense that these people wanted a king, but in God's forever sense of the word king, whose kingdom is not of this world, whose kingdom will last forever and ever, and we bow before him not only as the king of the universe, but as the king of our lives. And when we do that, like those disciples in the boat, we arrive at our destination. You know, I talk a lot about how in this life of faith, in, when, when you are a follower of what the early Christians called the way, with a capital W, it's about so much more than just the salvation of our souls. Have I harped on that once or twice in the last year? It's also about how the Spirit dwells in us and calls us to live in holiness and to do work for justice and to strive for peace in our lives and relationships in the world. And yes, the Christian faith is a lifelong experience. It is, to use the cliche, it's a journey, not a destination, etc., etc. I feel like I've beaten that drum around here enough. But in a very real sense, it is at the moment when we admit that we are lost shipwrecked or about to be without Jesus. It's that moment when we notice His presence and maybe even are a little bit terrified in that visceral plea to grab Him 
to hold on to him and take him into our boat, it's that moment that matters more than any other for us. That is the true beginning and, in some ways, the true end of our faith. And it's that moment that I'd like to ask you to focus on as we take communion together. I want to use the, the formal words for communion today. Would that be okay? It is now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Hear this. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire His help that they may lead a holy life, all who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life, following the commandments of God and walking from now on in His holy ways, all are invited to draw near with faith and to receive this holy sacrament. And I love these words. Come to this sacred table not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be His true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. Let's pray together. O Lord of all, we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, presenting to you from your creation this bread and this wine. Gracious God, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit on these gifts that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and the blood of the new covenant. Unite us to your Son in his death and resurrection that we may be acceptable through him, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ and bring us to that heavenly feast where with all your saints we will be gathered in glory everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church and the author of our salvation. By him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. You see why I like the formal words. <laughs> the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on Him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. The table is open. Let's continue to worship him together. And if you'd like prayer with our prayer team, that will happen right up here. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.